God, how we need you. That's the story of my life. I don't know about you. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I praise you. And I thank you that you are right there when we need you. I thank you that you're the Father who walks beside us, the Father who carries us through, who strengthens us, who helps us, who spurs us forward. I praise you that you're the Father who calls us into action. And so, Lord, as we look at these very difficult words from James, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us, Lord, the spirit, the message that your spirit would speak to us. Help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, when I was a kid, I went to Grace Park Elementary School, so I spent my life up until I was in the sixth grade. And there were a few things that we all looked forward to when we got to the fifth and the sixth grade. There were some responsibilities that you could take on, and they were very competitive spots. Everyone in the fifth and the sixth grade wanted to be a school safety. How many of you were school safeties? What? what? Yes, we were. And it was great when you got to be a safety, mainly for the safety picnic at the end of the year in May. Did you, did you have a safety picnic at the end of the year? Grace Park has safety picnic. It ruled. It was awesome. But anyway, the boys, they, they were mostly the outside safeties. They got to wear, remember that orange thing that goes across? Did you wear them? Um, they got to wear that and they would stand by the crossing guard, make sure the kids were walking, you know, and not running, make sure they were listening to this, uh, what the crossing guard said. But the girls were mostly assigned to the classrooms. I was assigned to um, a second grade classroom. We got the, that arm badge. Remember the arm badge? It was like a metal. It had the three A's on it or something. My brother used to punch all the time, punch the arm badge. Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Does it? Yes, it did hurt. And he kept doing it. I don't know. But anyway, so I was assigned to a classroom, and uh, I would go there every day at lunchtime. This thing doesn't fit right. I would go at lunchtime, and I would watch the kids while the teacher, I think her name was Mrs. Vestal, was on uh, lunch break. And that was worth it just because she gave me, like, a really cool Christmas present that year. It made dealing with those rotten little second graders all the worth all the while. But um, there was one job. It was, like, the coveted, the most supreme job, the highest honor that you could get when you were a safety. And it was, uh, you got to do it once, like in your fifth and sixth grade safety career. You got to be the junior fire chief. Because every month they would do a fire drill and, um, and one person, one safety would get to be the junior fire um, chief. So when we had a fire drill, um, everybody in the school uh, would have to line up uh, in the classroom, they'd have to put on their super silencers because you know you're not allowed to talk in the middle of a fire drill. And their job was to file to the back of the school and out onto the playground, which was located behind the school. And you were to do it quietly and you were to do it orderly and you were to do it quickly, okay? But if you were the junior safety, uh, the junior fire officer, um, then you got to not go to the back of the school. You got to go to the front of the school where Mrs. Jacobs, that's the principal, her office was. And you got the stopwatch. It was like the golden stopwatch. And you got to time things, you know, when, when everybody was going out of the classroom. So one month, it was my turn. Sometimes I'm apparently a little forgetful. I, I don't know. When it was my turn, 
the fire alarm went off. Mrs. McDevitt, our teacher, said, all right, children, this is fire drill. Everyone put on your super silencers and line up so that we can exit the building. And so upon the authority of Mrs. McDevitt, we all did just that. And I, I just, I, I guess I just forgot that I was the junior fire chief. So I got about halfway down the hallway and I realized, huh, you're the junior fire chief. And so I had to get out of the line and go up to Mrs. Jacobs's office. But while all of my classmates were walking quietly with their super silencers onto the back of the school, I turned around, got out of line, I was walking toward the front of the school, right? And they were all trying to stop me. They couldn't speak because why? They had their super silencers on, right? Okay, so I said, I'm the fire chief. And they didn't hear that. So I just started running down the hallway towards Mrs. Jacobs' office. It's okay. I'm the fire chief. I'm the junior fire chief. I'm the junior fire chief. So I ran down there. got the golden stopwatch. We kids got out of school. And I got to go on the intercom system and announce from Mrs. Jacobs' office how long it took them to get out of school. So um, that was, like, really, really fun. Um, I tell you that story because I want you to understand that if you're a student on fire drill day, an ordinary student, your job is to walk toward the back of the school with your super silencer on and exit the building to safety, right? But if you're the junior fire chief, you got a whole different job. You got to change direction. You got to walk in a different way and you have a different set of things that you have to do. Your identity determines your activity. Okay? Your identity determines your activity. Who you are determines what you should do. Now, that's how it is in life, too. If you're a preacher, you preach. If you're a student, you study. If you're a firefighter, you fight fires. Who you are determines what you do. Your identity determines your activity. Get that? Okay, that's what we've been learning in the book of James these past few weeks. Because in his letter, James gives us some very specific instructions about what you and I ought to be doing and how we ought to be acting as those who are identified as Christians, as followers of Christ. And so as we have been learning and as we're going to continue to learn, James does not mince words in his letter. Did you hear him say faith without words is dead? Like, he doesn't mince words. He tells it like it is. I love James for that. Okay? And he's going to be calling you and me in that letter to abruptly change our lifestyle. Just like I had to abruptly change direction from walking to the back of the school to walking to the front of the school, James is going to call you and me to change directions. He's going to call us to assume control of our behaviors and in doing so to show others that we are Christians, that we are those who obey and follow Jesus Christ. So we've been asking ourselves during this sermon series, what would Jesus do? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Because when we see the answer to that question, what would Jesus do? It gives us a pretty good picture of what we should be doing. When I see what Jesus would do, then I know what Cindy should do. Because my identity as a follower of Christ tells me that I should follow the example of Christ. My identity determines my activity. See how that works? That's why I told you that story. And James is going to go one step further today in his letter. And he's going to say that your identity as a follower of Christ should result in activity. It should have something attached to it. People who have true living faith in Jesus Christ, according to, be, to James, shouldn't just be sitting there 
And they shouldn't just be talking about their faith in Jesus Christ. They should be doing the things that Jesus did and calls them to do. Okay, so now with that in mind, I'm going to tell you another story from my childhood. You're going to know me so well by the end of this sermon. When I was about eight years old, I went through this phase where I couldn't sleep at night. Anybody ever have that? Like when you were a kid, I was afraid there were like monsters under my bed. There were monsters in my closet and I just couldn't sleep. I would cry myself to bed every single night. And my parents, they knew that was not good or healthy. So they had a brilliant idea. They bought me a cassette player. Anybody in this room does not know what a cassette player is? In the first service, all the kids raised their hands. Kids, it's how we used to listen to music before we had an iPod or an iPhone or all that digital stuff that you guys use. Anyway, I had a cassette player they bought me. And with that cassette player, they bought me one tape, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Okay, so when the monsters came, I would push play and I would fall asleep to Sherry, Sherry baby. And big girls don't cry. Come on. But I, I had to be a big girl. And, um, and so that really helped me. One day I was having a sleepover at my grandmother's house. I call her Nanny. It was my dad's mom. And I took the cassette player with me just in case there were monsters under Nanny's bed too. And um, as I was listening to Frankie Valley, the cassette broke. Remember how that used to happen? And I was crushed. And I thought, surely I'm never going to sleep again. And I cried myself to sleep that night. And I tried to keep the crying quiet so that Nanny wouldn't send me home. She did not. She did not send me home. Instead, I woke up the next morning to the glorious smell of her famous Morton honey buns. Remember Morton, Morton honey buns? She used to make them for me. And there on the table was my cassette player and the tape, which was all fixed. I want you to understand that my nanny was 78 years old. And her fingers, she had rheumatoid arthritis. And her fingers were kind of a little crooked and they had arthritis. And, um, and her eyes weren't really all that good. But somehow my nanny found a way to stretch out that tape and use scotch tape and an X-Acto knife to splice it back together. And then she used the pencil and the little wheelie thing. Remember how we had to do that? She used the pencil and the wheelie thing and she wound it up again so that I could have the music that made me happy. Now, I always knew that my nanny loved me. She told me all the time. She had a southern accent. She called herself Nanny Boots. And she would squeeze my cheeks like this. And she would kiss them like that. And she would say, your Nanny Boots loves you. I knew that she loved me, okay? Because she told me all the time. But my nanny showed me that she loved me by what she did. And I will never forget it. Because what she did demonstrated what was inside of her heart. Okay, all throughout my life, I've been blessed to know the love of those who are around me by the things that they've done. One year, my dad worked three jobs so that my brothers and I could have bicycles on Christmas. And back when my kids were little, I could only afford to go to Disney like once every five or eight years or something. And, um, and we were there and I was trying to take pictures over the castle. They had the fireworks. It was so beautiful. And, um, and my camera broke and it wouldn't work. And I remember just like, I threw it. I was so frustrated. And I was standing there crying at the castle. My 12-year-old son, Dan, went over and got the camera. And he was frantically trying to fix it so that his mom wouldn't go home from Disney without her precious memories. My mom, she gave up every single Saturday for three years to watch my kids so that I could fulfill my dream of becoming a nurse and go into nursing school. Um, these people loved me, but that wasn't all. Their love bore fruit. And the fruit of their love for me was the proof of their love. I knew their love was real, not because of what they said to me, but because of what they did. Okay, and that's kind of a picture of what James is telling you and me in chapter two here. 
But true faith, living faith in Jesus is faith that bears fruit. True faith moves the lover of Jesus into the actions of Jesus. So true faith is ratified by, it's verified by, it's evidenced by the good works that we do. Because Jesus, you may not know this, never sat around. He acted in love and he did good works all the time. And so James says, if there's an action springing up from your faith, maybe I ought to wonder if it's living faith in the first place. There's a whole kind of controversy about this passage. You know, for the last, this is the third week in a row, we're going to hold James and Paul next to one another, okay? Um, because it appears, it appears that James is contradicting what Paul told us in Ephesians 2. Okay, I promise that James is not contradicting Paul. Um, he's just addressing a different issue than what Paul was addressing. So very quickly, I'm going to tell you, um, here's what Paul said. Paul said, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, and then James come along, and he said it's not just by faith, but faith that bears fruit, faith that works. And so it looks like they're contradicting. Who's right here? Is it James or is it Paul? The answer is yes. They're both right, okay? Because they're, they're, they're saying, they're not, they aren't saying two different things. They're addressing to two different issues that were going on in the church, in their respective audiences to whom they were writing. So I once heard a sermon by Rick Warren that kind of helps clarify this. I'm going to share with you what he said. Rick explained that there are two key issues that were being dealt with, legalism and laxity. Okay, so when Paul wrote his words, he was dealing with a particular issue in, within his churches. The people were focused on the need to keep the Jewish laws in order to get to heaven. And they would look at the Gentile and they would say, well, pff, you're not circumcised. If you're not circumcised, don't think you're getting into heaven. And those people were under the understanding that I guess Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough to fully save a person and give salvation, but that you needed also to be diligent in keeping the Jewish laws. Uh, they were saying you need Jesus plus these other things. And Paul was saying, listen, friends, it's not by any works that you do that you're justified. It's by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need Jesus plus, you need Jesus, period. That's what Paul said. He was addressing the issue of legalism. James wasn't addressing legalism. James was writing to the church of the diaspora about laxity. See, those people said, well, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I believe, right? I, I said the prayer. I prayed the prayer. I believe in the Lord. And uh, that's it. I'm good. I'm in. And James says, but are you really good? Are you really in? Because if you're just sitting around like this, you're not looking like Jesus. James said, in order to know that you're getting into heaven, your faith needs to be living faith. It needs to be true faith. And true faith, living faith in Jesus is evidenced by actions that resemble what Jesus did, right? True faith is legitimized by the good things you do. True faith works. And so, James, how do I know that my faith is living faith? How do I know it's true faith? Well, first, I'll tell you that true faith isn't just something you say. Okay? James... In verse 14 says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? So James is saying, if you claim to have faith, if you say you have faith, but we don't see it manifest itself in any way, is that a kind of faith that would save you? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. By the way, 
Um, do, you, do you know, um, a few years ago, there was a Gallup poll, and uh, in this poll, 50 million Americans identified themselves as followers of Christ, as Christians, right? 50 million. To that I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's awesome news. But here's the thing. I look at churches in our country and their attendance is declining, right? One in seven kids in the United States of America is hungry. And when I look at those facts and I hold them next to the 50 million people say that they're Christians, I, I have to ask myself, like, are we really seeing a change in the people who say they're a follower of Christ? Or is the faith that they say they have nothing more than something they say they have? Faith. True faith isn't just something you say. True faith has real results. It produces real change, and those changes should be real evident in the way we live, in the way we treat others, in the things we say, and in the things we do. Now, I understand that we're all a work in progress, right? We're all a work in progress, and there are going to be times when we fall short, when we don't do what Jesus would have done. But if we have truly believed and committed ourselves to Jesus, there's going to be some change, and there's going to be some fruit. So true faith isn't just something you say that you have. Also, true faith isn't just something that you feel. True faith is more than just emotions. It is possible to go to church and get goosebumps. Anybody ever goosebumps in church? Anybody ever well up with tears in church? It is very possible to have those feelings and then go out of the church and never act on what you felt and never allow that to make a difference in what you do or how you behave. And James give us, gives us an illustration of this in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If you say to him, Go, I wish you well fed, but you do nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? Right? What good is it, James says, if you see someone need and be like, dude, I feel for you. I feel for you. And then you don't do anything to help their need. James is saying that real faith in Jesus Christ is more than just words. And it's more than just feelings. It's fruit. It's action. It's doing what Jesus would have done. And so listen, if out of on my way out of the church today, I fall down the steps and you see me as you're leaving, lying there in a puddle of my blood. Like, how many of you, raise your hand, would say like, Cindy, I feel for you. I hope that doesn't scar too bad. I, I, I hope you wouldn't do that, right? As followers of Christ, I hope that you couldn't have that. Because when someone that Jesus loves is hurting, then those who love Jesus feel that same hurt too, right? So I, I hope you would feel bad for me because you love Jesus and Jesus, I pray, loves me. And you'd, you'd risk getting some blood on your clothes and you pick me up, put me in your car and take me to Riddle so they could sew me back up. And then maybe you would say a prayer for me. Um, why? Because faith isn't just something that you feel. True faith gets involved and makes what is wrong right. A true Christ follower will be compelled, literally compelled, to care about those whom Jesus cares about. Okay. First John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Right? True faith takes action because it loves like Jesus loves. True faith leads us to do what Jesus would do. True faith is more than words that you say. It's more than a feeling you feel. And true faith is more than just a thing that you think. James goes on in verse 18. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. This is sort of how the church was behaving at that time. You show me your faith 
without deeds, James says, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. The two most important words in that entire sentence are this, show me, show me. True faith is visible. Living faith is apparent. And if you truly have faith, people will see it in the way you act and in the things you do. And in the way you treat others, there's a lot of people who think they have got faith, but can you see that faith evidenced in what they do in this world? And James says, if you, you know your faith is real, if it moves you to do. What if I said to you, boy, it's really windy out there. Woo! Wind is like crazy. And then you looked out and you see all the leaves on the trees are just sitting still. And the piece of paper that somebody dropped on the floor this morning is just sitting there undisturbed. You would wonder if what I thought was wind really was wind. Because it wasn't acting like wind, right? Things aren't moving and shaking like they would be if there really was wind. And the same thing is true with our faith. If there isn't moving and shaking, James says, is there really faith? True faith isn't just something you believe. Verse 19 says, you believe in God. Good. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. He's saying believing isn't enough, friends. You can have heard or have read or have even sung about Jesus. You can believe that he exists. And you can believe in your head that he is who he says he is and he did what he says he did. And James says, well, goody for you. Because even the devil believes in Jesus. Jesus is in Satan's head all the time. But true faith moves Jesus from your head to your heart. And then from your heart to your hands and your feet. You used to teach the youth a lesson about being 18 inches from heaven. And here's what we would say. I would say, listen up kids, I believe in Adolf Hitler. I know who he was. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that he existed. But I don't feel what he felt about other people. And I don't do what he did. And so that means I'm not a Nazi. Hitler exists in my head, but I've never let him get into my heart. It is possible, too, for Jesus to be alive and well in your head, as he is for even the demons, according to James. But if you don't allow him to move that 18 inches from your head to your heart, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's not a living faith. When you allow Jesus to move from your head to your heart, guess what happens. Suddenly you love the people that Jesus loves. And suddenly you do the things that Jesus did. And that's when faith gets real. Because real faith is something that we do. So in the next few verses, James gives us two illustrations that show us that faith is something you do. True faith is active. It's not passive. He says, you foolish man, you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac at the altar? His faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. So James is saying, Abraham, he, isn't, he wasn't saved by the act of putting Isaac on the altar. He was already saved. Abraham's actions proved his faith in God and he held nothing back. And that's what true faith looks like. And then he tells a story about Rahab. Her story's in Joshua too. And James's readers would have been very familiar with that. It's a story of how she helped a group of messengers that were coming into Jericho. And Rahab, because she had faith in the God of Israel, risked her life in order to save the spies. Our faith, friends, is 
um, it's not determined by what we do. It's demonstrated by what we do. Years ago, I think it was back in the 1920s or 1930s, there was a man named George Blondin. He was a daredevil. He used to walk on tightrope over the Niagara Falls. Anybody ever hear of him? George Blondin. Okay, so, um, so he would set the rope out and, um, and he would walk step by step across and he would do a little dance sometimes and step by step the crowd held on with bated breath because they knew that if he fell off that tightrope, certainly he would die right? George went across, and then when he reached the other side, he went back again, and he said, I'm going to up the ante. And he filled a wheelbarrow with dirt, and he pushed the wheelbarrow with dirt out across and balanced that on the tightrope. And when he reached the other side with the wheelbarrow all intact, the crowd went crazy. The crowd went wild. And George Blondin said, do you believe that I can do it again? And the crowd shouted, yeah. And there was one guy, he said, yes, I believe you could cross that rope all day long. And George Blondin, right there in front of the cheering crowd, tipped over the wheelbarrow and dumped out the dirt. And he said to the man, get in. In a very real sense, friends, that's what James is saying to you and me. He's saying, talk is cheap. I believe in Jesus, you say. Prove it, is what James says. Our faith is demonstrated by our actions. And our actions speak louder than our words. And so in light of what James says in this passage, and in closing, because um, I know the Eagles are playing, friends, you and I might consider ourselves a couple questions, asking ourselves a couple of questions. And I believe that the answers to these questions are going to let you know whether you have head faith or heart faith, whether you have dead faith or living faith, okay? Whether we're all talking feelings or whether our faith is faith that is true. And so the first one is, what changes can I point to in my life? Okay, do I treat people differently than I did when I was not a follower of Jesus? Am I more helpful to others? Am I less tolerant of seeing others wronged than I was before I put my faith in Jesus? And the second question we should ask ourselves is this, is my lifestyle any different from unbelievers? Do I look like this world or am I starting to resemble Jesus in my thoughts and my feelings and my actions? So many people think that it doesn't matter what you do so long as you believe. And James says, that couldn't be more far from the truth. He said, he's not saying that you work your way to heaven. James is not saying that your works will buy your salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying your works demonstrated. If your faith doesn't work, James says, what good is it? So how do you know your faith is real? How do I know my faith is real? Maybe some of you have doubts about whether you know, you, you've let Jesus move from your head to your heart. I'm a good person, you say, right? I go to church. I've known Jesus my whole life. I read my Bible. How can I be sure that that's the faith that's going to get me into heaven? I'm going to tell you how you know, friends. You and I are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what Paul told us. We are saved by grace through faith. But let me take a second and finish Paul's sentence. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. It's not the works that save us so that no one can boast. But then Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to say this, you have been saved for a life of good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. The grace is what saves us through faith. And the faith 
is what proves. I'm sorry, and the, the faith says it, we're proved when we raise our hand and we say, here I am, Lord. Here I am to do what you would have me to do. So when God's hand of grace reaches down, and then you notice that your hand of faith goes up and says, here I am. That's what true faith looks like. That's what living faith looks like. Real faith doesn't mean just standing there. It means getting into the wheelbarrow and letting your identity as a believer in Jesus determine your activity in this world. And so if you haven't reached out in faith to God, what better day to do it than this one? Why not invite him to make the 18-inch journey from your head to your heart and in doing so, to move your hands and feet as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that was a lot, Lord. That was a lot to take in. I pray that you would help us to understand how it is that you saved us, but also what it is that you call us to. I pray, Lord, that you would help to transform us, to be less like this world and more like Jesus. We thank you for your hand of grace that reached down. Help us raise our hands and say, here I am. We love you, God. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.